0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Today's guest... Is Malika Andrews? She's an NBA reporter who covers that league nationally. You have seen her certainly on ESPN television. Uh, she recently was uh, believed to be the youngest television sideline reporter ever to work the Eastern Conference Finals. Malika's only 25, but uh, but her work is uh, is remarkable for sure. She um, she works for ESPN.com. You may have seen her byline in the Chicago Tribune or the New York Times, she's um, she's really one of the people in the industry, one of the young people in the industry whose name and work you should know. And in this piece, we talk about what it's been like to cover the NBA inside the bubble for four months, the challenges of that, the joys of that. Um, Malika uh, was very, very honest and very transparent during a Sports Center segment with Scott Van Pelt uh, regarding uh, the grand jury's results on Brianna Taylor. And so she talks about getting choked up on air. She is very, very honest about um, her background and um, and her family life. She, uh, she left uh, home at 14 after flunking out of middle school, had an eating disorder, eventually went to a couple boarding schools and um, came back, uh, did not, I believe, go to college, uh, immediately worked a year prior to that. And she's just—it's um, got a pretty unique family and a unique background. I work with her sister Kendra Andrews at the Athletic, who's a phenomenal young talent. And so I think you're going to enjoy this. It's a—it's uh, a woman who um, is just really honest about her place right now in the sports media. Malika Andrews coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Malika Andrews is the guest. She is an NBA reporter. And she covers the league nationally. So you've seen her um, work a lot during the bubble across multiple ESPN platforms, primarily television for sure in the last couple of weeks. But you can read her stuff on ESPN.com. You probably hear her voice on ESPN radio. Uh, She has um, she's got uh, some well-known experience prior to ESPN as well, including working at the Chicago Tribune. And she was at the New York Times where she worked In the sports department uh, for full disclosure, her sister Kendra works with me at The Athletic and uh, her sister is awesome and a rising star at our place and pleased to be joined by Malika Andrews. Malika, you're in the bubble. How are you at the moment?
2: I am in the bubble. I could use another cup of coffee, but other than that, I am doing just fine. <laughs> All
1: right. Let's get some... Uh, let's just sort of get a little bit of the chronology here, because I, I think people will be interested. How long... Wh- wherever your home is, how long have you been away from home at this moment?
2: So, um, my home is New York City, and I have been away from home... Today is day 96, Richard. So, whatever that is in, in months or weeks. 96 days. So... I'm going on my fourth month in
1: the NBA bubble in Orlando. So once you're and once so once you're there for this amount of time, um, does the the heightened part of the um, the like does the medical part is it still feel heightened? I'm sure you're still getting tested often. And I don't know if it's daily or every couple of days, but but does it does that part at all go away, or are you always cognitively aware that you are in this sort of, me- for lack of a better word, medical experiment?
2: Well, so first of all, we are still tested daily here, and then we get those results generally generally within 12 to 18 hours uh, via email. If you test negative, you would get a phone call if you tested positive, um, as it is with basically any scary doctor's office result, right? Um, but I think that when I first got here however many months ago on June 29th, the biggest difference was all of the medical protocols that were in place then are in place now, but there's also just a layer of understanding what is functional for every day here, wearing masks, washing your hands, um, getting your daily COVID test, taking your temperature and pulse oximeter reading that all happens every day. And what is more of a, a, protocol that was put in place for the just in case this is the, the, the strictest possible protocols we could have. And I think while the NBA is still keeping those in their back pocket, as time has gone on a little bit of it has relaxed just in, just in terms of, well, we've been living this way. We got used to it. And this is the functional adaptation of the rigid rules, if that makes sense. So For me, personally, when I first got here, I was coming from New York. New York was a hotbed of coronavirus, especially New York City. And Governor Cuomo and de Blasio, the mayor, had really put in very strict rules. And Adam Silver and the league, when they were looking at the country and looking at where to host this at the time, Florida had had an incredibly low case number when they decided on this. And then obviously we know that number went up basically just as the NBA was going, was set to arrive in Orlando. And so when I first got here, I was coming from the mindset of having been bunkered down in my home in New York since essentially since mid March, I was, I was incredibly strict about it. I'm a little bit of a hypochondriac. So when I first came here, you're allowed to eat with other people And take off your mask. I wouldn't because I was afraid. Now, four months later, I've come to understand that I feel more comfortable doing that as people have continued to test it negative. But I get asked all the time, you know, by folks on Twitter, why are you wearing a mask on television in an empty arena? Well, two reasons. One, because it's a league rule that you have to wear a mask when you're in the arena if you're not a player or a coach um, or a ref. And even if it's empty. And secondly, because people say, well, you're tested every day. What is, why are you still wearing a mask? Because getting tested doesn't prevent you from getting coronavirus. And there are still folks who come into the bubble who've been exposed to a higher degree than I have, whether it's folks who go home at night, who then come clean your room, whether it's folks who clean the arena at the end of the day, wearing a mask prevents you or puts you at a lower risk of contracting it. Getting tested just confirms whether or not you have it. By that point, it's too late. So that's sort of how the rules have evolved a little bit.
1: Malik, at a very um, sort of base emotional level, have you enjoyed it? I, I get it. It's a it's a unlike any other experience, and you're covering history. But have you have you enjoyed it? Have you enjoyed being there?
2: You know, I have, but mostly for those reasons. Mostly because anytime. And, and you know this, Richard, sports is so often thought of as the toy department in a newsroom. Anytime it carries gravity, anytime it intersects with other worldly, quote-unquote, more important things, that's something I revel in, and that's what this has been. From the wildcat strike from the Milwaukee Bucks to COVID protocols, that that's what this is so that part i've really enjoyed i am looking forward to ordering in sushi from my favorite new york restaurants when i leave here
1: what uh what's been the toughest challenge
2: oh i mean Coming down here, I think, was scary because the risk you were assuming was very real. You know, there were liability waivers put in front of you. I would never liken it to Rukmini Kalamaki's work at the New York Times going into you know, ISIS-controlled areas and putting your hands in backpacks that could contain some sort of explosive But there was a risk involved and that risk, especially watching the cases ebb and flow in Florida was challenging covering the shooting of George Floyd was challenging. Um, being in here with Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying was challenging being in here kind of insulated while all of these things are going on in the quote unquote real world, I think was a challenging dichotomy to balance. Um, and then, you know, from a, just a, a base level, the hours are really long. I mean, there's not that many people here it's isolating and you are here purely to work. And I love my job. I love reporting. But that doesn't mean that it's not draining when that is your entire existence every day, seven days a week, more weeks than not.
1: I eventually want to get to your um, your background, sort of how you got into the business. But let, I think sort of since we're talking about this, let's let's stay in let's sort of stay in real time here. Let's stay in terms of what you're doing now. Um, prior to joining ESPN, you. Um, you know, you, you were primarily a writer more than anything else. I think that's, that's fair to say, even if you had some multimedia assignments, um, at ESPN in a very, very short uh, amount of time, Malika, you, um, you have become a prominent face on their television coverage and on properties, obviously that have seen by, that are seen by a million people. I know ESPN put out that they believe you're the youngest television sideline reporter ever to work the Eastern conference finals. Um, you were not a quote unquote TV person um, prior to the last <laughs> no. year, right? So what's what what is that one? So one, what has that process been like? But two, also, what has it been like to sort of make, just be more recognized and to to know that your image and and words are now being um, put out there to millions and millions of people.
2: Um. I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about just how many people are. It's easier going on television and looking into a camera and delivering the news, not thinking about how many people are potentially watching. I think about being fair. I think about being accurate. But it would be much harder to deliver a speech or even the same stand-up in a Theater or pavilion or somewhere where you could actually physically see the people that you are, are talking to, because like you said, it's, it is, um, a lot of people in terms of the transition though. I, I, I think that I, I was, I was really lucky to have some really awesome producers that, that worked with me, Melinda Adams, who was here with me in the bubble also actually worked with me in the Eastern Conference Finals last year. And at that point I was doing sort of sporadic sports center hits covering the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, her and Andrea Pelkey would take the time to tell me how my delivery could be better, how I could pace a little bit better, how maybe this information could go next time. And mostly how you're never as good or as bad as you think you are. And so to keep that in mind was helpful. But I think even more so than that, and I I tell people this when, you know, college students ask me about television, like you said, I, I am a, I am a, I'm a writer, I'm a print reporter and I love to write. I have loved to write since I was making up wild, crazy fictional stories that I tried to pass off as fact in, in, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, um, and I think that what I've learned is, if just like when I'm writing, the more information I have, the easier the story flows. I'm not driving a stick ship car where when I stop, I stall out. I am able to kind of put together this, this story because I have so much information that it almost writes itself. You know, that kind of, oh, it writes itself trope. And I think that if you spend the time on the information, yeah, there's variants of delivery. You might be excellent on TV. You might be mediocre on TV. And we have an entire range across our networks. But our, our facts, that's what really matters. So I've tried to invest the time on the reporting end so that just like when I'm writing, when I go on TV, it just sort of comes out. Because what's what's challenging is when you don't have the reporting to deliver. I think that you can massage delivery all you want, but that's not the most important thing. The important thing isn't how you exactly how you talk, exactly how you look, exactly that you get every verb perfectly correct. It's the story that you're telling, the information that you're giving, and that's where you need to invest your time. And I think that's the mistake that that some folks make, and that I've been lucky enough to have been guided on is invest in the reporting part. Don't worry so much about the delivery part. And I think the good information has what sort of helped me to continue to get these opportunities
3: um, at ESPN. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for fifty percent off. Visit rosettastone.com slash RS ten. That's fifty percent off unlimited access to twenty five language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your fifty percent off at rosettastone.com slash rs ten today.
1: One of the things that when I've seen you on, um when I've seen you on television, I think to myself and when I knew you were going to come on today, is one of the questions I wanted to ask you about to just to get some insight from your perspective. You're you're 25 years old, which puts you um, literally in the age group, or even perhaps on the younger side of the players that you're reporting on. Um, the league has a lot of 25 year olds, 23 year olds, 21 year olds. Obviously, got 30 year olds and 32 year olds, but you're in one of these positions where you are of the generation of the people you are covering. Uh, once upon a time I was, Malika, but that ain't the case anymore. <laughs> um, so but I know, it's right,
2: but it's like off as a twenty something. <laughs>
1: you. That's very well, well read that's well reading of the cue cards. Malika. Um, oh yeah. Uh,
2: and that was so, presented by <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah. Sponsor that if you're gonna do that. Um, so but 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 the reason I asked that is I, I think like there's a real Advantage sounds like such a weird word, but I think there's like a real commonality to being of that generation and I think the athletes of that generation will trust you. You know, people might say, "Oh, well, um, you know, it's an old like trope like, oh, black athlete is going to be more likely to talk to this black reporter. White athlete's going to be more talk to a white reporter. Whatever. Maybe in some places maybe yes, maybe no. But I do think there is a total there is total truth about having a reporter of someone's age. And being able to relate to them on age more than anything else passes gender, passes everything else. So, just from your perspective in talking to these guys, both on and off the camera, how have you found your age to be a factor in your reporting and your access and everything else?
2: Well, I, I do think it's a there's a level of relatability, right? I think that whether it's the the same music, the same even the same slang. Being similar in terms of uh, maybe the things you would do in your downtime, although I don't really play a whole lot of of video games, which I know a lot of the players my age do a whole lot of video games. I don't play any video games, what am I saying? Um, But I, I do think just in terms of that, being able to relate and talk to someone who you are of a similar, when you're close in age, it just gives you that, that similar lens in a lot of ways on, on life, on what's kind of going on in the world. And that, that can be helpful. I think the line that has to be very clear is I am, I, I, I do think that friendships can grow in businesses when you are spending a lot of time with people. I think especially the more you have in common with somebody that, can lend itself to friendship. And um, I think the only thing there is I have to be very clear that I am not friends of the people I cover. I think that you can grow to be fond of people. I think you can grow to enjoy people's company. I think that when I look at some of the, the great in the business, my friends, my mentors like Jackie McMullen and Ramona Shelburne, um, they have become very close with some folks over a lot of time and often a friendship doesn't develop until they're no longer covering them because as I actually, I, I told a player this not that long ago, the issue comes when power needs to be held to account. And so I would never want to give off the impression of we're buddies because if and when something goes wrong, if and when there is a fact that must come to light that you don't want to, I can't be your friend. And so I think that's just the line I have to walk sometimes. And and all reporters have to walk with being similar to folks, whether that's age, that's gender, that's race, that's coming from the same hometown. I think that's that's the challenging side of it, but I do think there's a lot of benefits just in terms of the fact that surely, like purely when I walk into a locker room, which I don't do anymore at the time of COVID, I look different. And so whether that's because I'm a woman, whether that's because I'm young, whether that's because I am black, anything that's different can stand out. So when I ask question, my voice might sound different, especially I've noticed in the bubble, there aren't that many female reporters here. The, the ones that are here are formidable. You know, I work with Rachel Nichols every day, but I think that difference can also be helpful because it's a different perspective. It's new. It's a different conversation than they've had with the four or five, six of my colleagues. And I think that sometimes that can be helpful. That's not to say it's better or worse, but it can be helpful.
1: I appreciate that answer. Um, the, the during a um, SportsCenter episode with Scott Van Pelt, he asked you about um, the the Louisville police officers who shot Brianna Taylor, um, and who um, and the result of the sort of the, the the grand jury result of that not being specifically held accountable for her death. And within that, here's what, um, here's what you said. I'll read it back to you. I, I know you, you know what you said, of course. Uh, I'm sorry that I'm getting choked up. A couple other things. And then I've prided myself in being able to be objective and cover these sorts of issues. But when it is so clear that the system of objectivity in journalism is so whitewashed and doesn't account for the fact that when I am walking up the hill with my wonderful producer Melinda reminds me that Brianna Taylor was 26 and I am 25 and that could have been me, it's very hard to continue to go to work and that's what these players were feeling um, it's a pretty extraordinary moment in my opinion on TV because you um you did something that we don't often see and that's um and that's really be vulnerable in real time on television and sort of open yourself up to the audience to something that's very very raw and I wonder as you have a little bit of hindsight now what what do you remember about that moment today
2: Well, I remember walking into that hit. I, I really had no intention of inserting myself in any way into my reporting. It's not generally something I'm comfortable with. Um, it's, it's not something I do really. Um, and so when I, when I walked into work on, when I walked in to do that hit, I I really only had the intention of talking about Jalen Brown and what he said, which was something to the effect of he was disappointed, but not surprised Because this is something that happens over and over and over again, and it will continue to black people being shot by police and then not having those law enforcement officers be found guilty in the eyes of the law for murdering or hurting or killing that person, no matter, you know, with with self-defense into consideration or not. And as I was delivering that, what hit me was that, as I said it, my voice just sort of cracked. And I, like I said, I didn't really have any intention of of going there, but once my voice cracked, I felt the need to explain. And what I needed to explain was that before that game, I had been, my, I, I had been, and I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this, Rachel Nichols and I had been crying in a, in a back room of that arena and cleaned ourselves up as people walked by to go do our jobs because over the last week, we'd seen this verdict, this decision by a grand jury in Louisville, who now one juror is saying that they don't feel they got all the information. We'd, we'd seen Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a champion of women, die, And to be surrounded by that was hard and human. And then to clean myself up, to go on television, to try to deliver this, what what I meant by and what I hope was the takeaway from folks when I said that about objectivity is that when the, the system of objectivity was put together in journalism. Those journalists that were writing objectively with this eye for an eye journalism were white men. And so it didn't account for the fact that your experiences are reflected in the really hard, challenging, difficult news that you cover. And my mentions were full of people saying, and I really do try not to look full of people saying, well, you would never be in that situation because you are not, fill in the blank. That's not the point. The point is that what is what we need to reckon with as journalists, and Wesley Lowry, my, my wonderful friend, wrote a great piece about this for, for the New York Times about objectivity and how it needs to change, is that it, it, it can no longer just be It has to be emotionless eye for an eye, one Democrat perspective for one Republican perspective, one white perspective for one black perspective, because that's not what objectivity is. And we know that, and we need to adapt to it. And in this time when truth is being challenged, we can't just say, well, this is what this person said. And this is what that person said. You decide what is true. There is a truth. It is our job to steer, steer people towards that. And, on that day, I couldn't remove myself. And the first thing I thought when I got off that, when, when the lights went off and I was done with that hit with SVP was, one, I'm a little embarrassed I cried. Two, I certainly hope players would not feel that I hijacked their message with my own emotions. And three, I certainly would not hope I hope that Breonna Taylor's family wouldn't think that I was making something about myself when it is so clearly a personal tragedy for them. So that was a hard day. I didn't really go back, and I still haven't gone back and watched the full clip. Um, But I do hope that as journalists, especially in sports, we continue to, to chew on on that, on how we think about what is objective, um, because that is a privilege. Objectivity, like that, the classic definition of it, and objectivity is something I hold dear. I think it's important to credibility, but my definition of objectivity is changing, um, and I hope others are too. So, sorry for the rant.
1: <laughs> no, not all right. I appreciate uh, I appreciate your sort of you given some insight into how you think um what what is your sort of two-part question here but sort of of the same part what what is your social media experience like sort of what i'm really asking like sort of what are your mentions like and (laughs) is it is is it challenging for you to navigate and or self-censor um on your uh social media feeds um understanding that your company has uh some social media guidelines and understanding that we're in a very, we're in a world where there are some people who, um, steadfastly believe that we should all be siloed into, um, what our profession is and thus only speak about what our profession is.
2: I think that's silly. I, I think that, first off in terms of my, my social media, um, Adrian Wojnarowski gave me some of the best advice. He showed me physically how to narrow down my social media feedback loop so that my, the notifications I get are only from people I follow. So I can only in my comments category see the people who I also follow. And that was very helpful. That doesn't mean that occasionally I don't look, I do. I try not to, because I don't think the human brain is meant to get feedback from that many people about who you are, how you dress, what you say. Um, but I, I do think it is valuable to see how people are responding to certain stories. It can give you a little bit of insight into what tracks, what doesn't, even though we know social media is only really a fraction of how people actually read, especially our stories on, on, online, my, my, my written work. I think that's important. There's been a couple of times where I've caught where readers have caught uh, a typo in a story and all of that I really appreciate is really valuable. And I am, I'm thankful they take the time to do that. I do think there is a, a faction of Twitter, Instagram, other places that aren't, aren't productive at all. And so I try to weed that out because it's just not healthy, let alone happy I do think we are moving towards a place where there's an understanding, especially in sports, that sports is so intertwined. It's really a microcosm of race, politics. These are, these are people. People aren't one-dimensional. We overwhelmingly cover one dimension of who they are, basketball players, but that doesn't mean that's it. And I think one of the reasons I came to ESPN is the woman who hired me, Christina Gaglis has this just supremely awesome view of what sports are that jives with mine. And that is looking at where sports intersect with other other things, whether that's fun, whether that's quirky, whether that's serious, whether that's political. She's not afraid to go there. And when I came to ESPN, that's what I I wanted to work for her. I wanted to do that and tell those sorts of stories. And I think that while there are parts of ESPN that are meant for more sports highlights, there are other parts of ESPN that are meant for investigative journalism. There are other parts of ESPN that are meant for fun and silliness. There are other parts of ESPN that are specifically dedicated to the coverage of black people or women. And that's because as a a company we're we're evolving and just like any news outlet, it isn't perfect. We are continuing to sort of grapple with what our role is, especially now when everything's sort of been thrown into a blender. But I think that there is a, a larger understanding, especially in the NBA that just the X's and O's of basketball. If, if a, if a fan has watched the game, they know what happened it is my job to uncover or deliver something else, something supplementary, something to enhance that. So I think that that is helping to have a larger, even if that thing is on the court, I think that is helping folks to, to understand and move towards a broader definition of sport and sports coverage. And I also I like to give our, 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 readers, our readers are, are, are curious and smart and we want to deliver intelligent and tickling and thought-provoking stories to them. And that's, that's what our duty is. And so a lot of the time, those stories aren't just a recap of what already happened and they already know.
1: with this Malik and I realize this is a pretty personal topic so um you know go as far as you want um or don't go anywhere if you don't want to but um you know I, I I told you this uh as I say uh you know as the kids like yourself say in real life um that I think there's value in um in talking about these things publicly because people you know it's just like when athletes talk about mental health like if if someone well known um, is going through something that you're going through, you can connect with them. There's massive value in DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love and Dak Prescott and all these people talking about uh, mental health because it's um, yeah I, whatever. I'm just I'm, I don't mean to proselytize, but I, I think if you're an adult in this real world, like that's what strength and leadership is, and so. Um, a couple weeks ago, you, um, in a very revealing, um, piece with Andrew Marchand in the New York Post, um, told him that you had flunked out of middle school and that you had suffered from an eating disorder. Um, and it was something that was a a major part of your life. It's obviously sort of still is. And I realized that that's, you know, that's a painful experience, but, um, if you're comfortable, how dark would the, were those times and and how did you how did you come out of it?
2: Uh, they were very they were really dark. I mean, I remember it, it, it was it was hard. It was hard for me. It was hard for my parents Um, and it was, I think that now I'm able to look at it as something that shaped me. I think that leaving, essentially leaving home at at 14, after you said I I failed out of middle school um, and was angry and struggling and closed off and engaging in some, I don't know, other, other scary behaviors. Um, I do think having to figure that out is a, became a big part of who I am and why I am. I, when I did that interview, my, my intentions are never to be the story or to be distracting from the work that I do, which is to cover other people's stories, to balance their stories with objective truths and I don't want to, I don't want to be the story. Um, but I, I also, when talking about someone who when, when talking about myself, when talking about doing what I have done, I don't want to give people, I, when I was talking to Andrew Marchand who, who did a great job, I didn't want to give this impression that I magically succeeded and everything was easy. And I also spend so much of my time convincing people to open up to me and that maybe they could help somebody else. And I felt like I needed to take my own advice. Um, so, yeah, to your, to your original question, it was tough. It was something that I think now I can look back on and sort of replay the highlights like a movie as opposed to feeling how kind of hopeless and sad and and. that I felt um but yeah going from boarding school to another boarding school feeling like I was letting people down but not totally knowing why um feeling left out because I I left at 14, came back at 18, and everyone who I was friends with, you know, folks talk about the friends they've had since lower school and middle school. I I lost those friends. I alienated them. I was horrible to them. And I left and life carried on without me. And reckoning with that as a, you know, I think probably normally narcissistic teenager um, was hard. And to, you know, I came back, I graduated high school a year early because boarding school, it wasn't because I was some whiz, although I did, I poured myself into school when I was away. It's because school was year round, because that was a structure that they could, you know, keep us in to protect us from ourselves. Um, And even, you know, four years, I was there for on the longer end of both of my boarding school stints because... I couldn't just get on this path and keep pushing. I had to continue to, I would take two steps forward and I would just take a step back. And like you said, it's not something that's gone today. It's not something that I have a wonderful relationship with food and everything is perfect. There are still struggles that I have and I, I'm working on that. I think everybody is, is working on it. I'm thankful we're kind of in a place as a society where that's something that more people are digesting and feeling comfortable talking about. But I just when I when I when I shared that with with the post, my intention was to make sure that I wasn't giving off a false sense of perfection because I think that's what I try to build sometimes. And in order to hold myself accountable in some ways, I didn't feel like I could do that. And I think more than anything, it was hard on my parents. Um, it was hard on my sister who, you know, from 12 to 17 was 16 was, was without me. She was the only child for those years. Right. So, Um, but it made me who I am. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it because I think it gave me my work ethic. Um, it gave me a sense of independence. It gave me, a a drive to want to find purpose. It felt like I had none. So yeah.
0: I
1: appreciate that. I have two more for you and then, uh, I'll let you go back to covering the NBA finals. You're, uh, your dad, Mike, is a personal trainer. Your mom, Karen, is an art teacher. Your yep. mom is Jewish and white. Your dad yep. is black. Uh, and I think, as you told me prior to us coming on, doesn't necessarily classify himself as a certain religion. You are—you um, would classify yourself as African-American. You had a bat mitzvah. Um, yeah. I mean, this is—I want to write about this. I want to write about this family, personally, because <laughs> it's, it's pretty— pretty great slice of America um, I imagine um I imagine you, your family has played a big role in shaping you that's as I read off all that stuff you um you know you're kind of a cool like uh, you're kind of a cool mixture of 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 uh, <laughs> of a lot of different things and I just wonder you know it's not really an open-ended question for you it's just um it must have just been an uh, it must have been an interesting family to to grow up and I would I I would guess given everything I just rolled off and that's obviously just you know those are just like headlines as opposed to like knowing your (laughs) your sister et cetera.
2: yeah uh no I mean it it definitely was I um I have a I have a great family I mean you know my sister she is I always say she's she's me but kinder um (laughs) but she um She's my best friend and she is so much fun. And I just, I, 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 you asked me at the beginning of this, what the hardest part is I, I miss her a whole lot. I had so much fun um, when I was on the sidelines for the Nuggets games, kind of calling her to prepare for, for those broadcasts. And I also, you know, I'm, I'm older. And so oftentimes people, refer to her as, as my little sister, you know, Oh, you're Malika's sister. Um, but when I'm around the nuggets, I am Kendra's sister and I, I love being Kendra's (laughs) sister. I love that sort of role reversal. Oh, you're Kendra's sister. Sometimes, um, players would, they'd call her name over the zoom and a player would kind of look at me and I'd shake my head and they're like, Oh, you're not Kendra. And would look back to the monitor because they were looking for her. They know her. Uh, much more than they knew me coming into this. And so um, from, from the nuggets and so, I mean, I'm, she's great. I'm so proud of her. I think we both got our, we, we had hard work models for us. And, um, and that's not something I would, I wouldn't, my parents are, we're all incredibly close still And, um, you know, I grew up having family dinners, even though my dad worked late, we'd wait for him. And I'm at the time I was annoyed as hell. (laughs) I couldn't just eat before my dad got home, but I'm so glad, um, that we did that now because I have all these memories of sitting around our dining room table because that's where we spent most of our time together because both of my parents worked. Um, but yeah, my, I mean, my, my mother has four siblings. My father doesn't have any siblings and both of his parents are um, not around anymore, unfortunately, but my whole family, my mother's siblings, her siblings, children, my grandfather, Sandy, um, we're all really, really close. Like Thanksgiving is not just four people. It's like 25. So (laughs) I, that was, i'm they're great
1: <laughs> i don't know what else to say no that's uh that's awesome um all right and the last one uh for me is um you know malika from uh from the first time i ever talked to you and uh, uh i asked you to do a panel uh when you were in college uh panel uh a panel we wanted to be one of the panel college student panelists that i used on a sports illustrated panel oh, yeah. you always struck yeah you always struck me as someone who um uh, was not necessarily going to stay in sports for their career. And I always sort of thought like you would do it. And then ultimately, and that's not to say like, if you did stay in sports your whole career, it wouldn't be awesome, but you just always struck me as someone who ultimately had other interests that you wanted to pursue as you now are at ESPN at a phenomenal position that obviously, you know, so many people would, would want to be in and covering like, you know, one of the great, obviously pro sports leagues in the world. Um, do you think this is something that you're going to continue to do for the rest of your professional career? Or do you have ultimately designs on doing other things?
2: You know, I honestly don't know. I, I love my job. I love the people I work with. Um, They're more than my colleagues. They're, they're my friends. And, At the same time, I, there are days that I have, whether it's when there is an important Supreme Court ruling or President Trump is diagnosed with coronavirus or whatever the case may be, there is a a killing of another Black person at the hands of police that I feel that I should be reporting out those stories. And usually that feeling, I am able to feed, I'm able to help, by covering the intersection of that thing and that event and sports, whether it's when I was at the Times covering the wildfires through the prism of the equine industry, whether it was covering the Donald Trump and Sturney Daniels through the prism of the golf tournament they were at, whether that is covering coronavirus through the heartbreaking ways in which it has touched the NBA, like with Carl Anthony Towns and his mother, whether it is with the Minnesota Timberwolves or Steven Jackson attending or organizing rallies, usually that check that, that, that helps me feel like I am telling important stories that matter to people and their families. And it's so unfortunate that those stories are oftentimes tragedies, but Um, A mentor of mine gave me some advice, and she said, the day that those feelings extend beyond hours or even days, but go to weeks, months, or maybe years, that's when you'll know that potentially it's time to look towards doing something a little bit different. And so I am not rushing to get out of sports. I love it. I want to keep doing it and I honestly don't think I've given it everything I have to give. I have, I have a lot more to, to give and uncover and learn and do here. But if there ever comes a point where I feel like, you know what, I feel like I've given this my all. I do have those other interests and I I would go explore them.
1: Malika Andrews is a reporter and writer for um, ESPN. Uh, You see her covering at the moment, uh, the NBA for multiple platforms, including uh, ESPN linear television, ESPN.com, and ESPN radio. Uh, Malika, I can't thank you enough for giving me time and for your honesty, and um, and I have uh, I have really great respect for you. You know, respect isn't about age; respect's about work, and I have such great respect for. Um, how you approach, uh, the craft. Thanks so much for, uh, joining me today on the sports media podcast and, uh, enjoy that sushi in a couple of weeks. I'm sure <laughs> it tastes good.
2: Now that I'm counting down towards. Thank you for having me.
1: All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Malika Andrews for her, uh, time and her honesty. I really enjoyed that conversation and, and I hope you did too. The sports media, with Richard Dutch podcast. If you go to the archives, I think you'll find, um, things that, uh, that you'll absolutely like. The episode prior to this, writing critically on Kobe Bryant, uh, the guest was Jeff Perlman, the author of Three Ring Circus, Kobe Shaq Phil, and the crazy years of the Laker dynasty, as well as Donovan Bennett, my colleague at Sportsnet in Canada, on, um, on, the, on how he views um, the differences between the Canadian sports media and the American sports media, as well as American college football and some other things. Before that, we did a a long segment on NFL Viewership Talk with John O'Rand, as well as uh, authors uh, Sayward Darby and Corey Sobel. Uh, Prior to that, Jim Trotter and Steve Weish of NFL Media, Kavitha Davidson and Jessica Luther, they are the authors of a what is still a relatively new book, Loving Sports, When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan. Steve Weiss, Jim Trotter have a new podcast called Huddle and Flow. Before that, Renee Young, the uh, or actually I should say Renee Paquette, formerly known as Renee Young of the WWE. She was awesome to give me a lot of time on leaving the WWE. Head to the archives. Um, a lot of the stuff, I think, uh, if you're interested in sports media, still stands up and uh, you can enjoy l- listening to some previous episodes. Um, I say this for uh, every podcast, but uh, leaving a five-star review and uh, some kind of comment uh, absolutely is critical for me. It is a niche podcast. And so that's how the podcast continues. I want to thank everybody. Cadence 13, Patrick Antonetti, Sean Cherry, John McDermott, Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.